You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So last week in Exodus 16, we looked at the story of the manna, and I mentioned that there's a key theme that shows up in that story we see all throughout the entire Old Testament. It's the theme of human sinfulness and God's gracious provision. if, If the Old Testament is going to teach us anything, it's going to teach us that people sin and deserve God's judgment, but God still gives grace. Humans are God's creatures created in his image, made by him to find their fulfillment in him, and yet humans, we, us, we have rebelled against God. We have sinned against God, but God, who has every right to just be done with us, he chooses to show grace to us. And we see this in the Old Testament, we see it in the Bible, as early as Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. We see it again with Noah, then with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then with Joseph. And now we have been seeing it in this new nation called Israel. And here in Exodus 17, we see once again this theme of sin and grace. And it actually follows the exact same pattern we saw last week in chapter 16, also in chapter 15. And here's the pattern. I just, I'm going to remind you the pattern we saw last week. We've seen this now a couple times. Is first, Israel grumbles. Then secondly, God graciously provides. And then third, it's called a test. So grumbling, God provides, and it's called a test. Now, the main difference here in chapter 17 is that this time, it's not Yahweh who tested Israel, but it's Israel who tests Yahweh, which is not a good thing, all right? We need to talk about that, okay? This is not a good thing what Israel does here. It's actually one of three lessons that we're going to see in this passage, and And what I want us to do this morning for the sermon is I want us just to spend some time looking at the three lessons here in Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. We're going to look at each one um, closely, but let me go ahead and tell you what they are. Um, uh, I'm going to to state these to you. They're lessons, but I'm going to state them to you in the form of exhortations, okay? Here's the first. The first one is, the first lesson is beware the test you must fail to give, Number two is remember God's presence transcends your circumstance. And then number three, drink from the rock in wonder and joy. All right, those are three lessons for us. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, indeed, we have tasted and we have seen that you are good. You have given us spiritual food and drink and We believe right now, in this moment, we we believed as Jesus has promised us that we will live forever. We will live, we will live forever. We are a people who are going somewhere and, and we need you, Father, by your spirit. We need you to be with us along the way. We need you to guide us, to lead us, even in this moment with your word open before us. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's look at that first lesson here. I'll say it again. Lesson number one, beware 
the test you must fail to give. Beware the test you must fail to give. Look at verse 1 again. Josiah read it. Let me read it again. Verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sinai by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, we know this is not the first time that we have seen the people of Israel be upset with Moses. Like if we're counting, going back to chapter 5, this is actually the fifth time that we've seen Israel react this way. But I want you to notice three, three key words in these first few verses, okay? These are, are words that are going to, I think, explain for us more of what's going on here. The three words are number one, quarrel. Number two is test. And then number three is that word grumble again. Quarrel is a new word. This is the first time it shows up. Test. We've seen before, but this is a different context and a little different meaning than in chapter 16. And then the word grumble is the same exact word that we've already seen the last two chapters, except I think that these other two words, quarrel and test, sort of help us understand what this grumbling is a little better. We get a, we get a better glimpse into what grumbling is, mainly because we see it in this verbal package with to quarrel and to test. Okay, so if we're looking at all of these words together, these words together are supporting and giving meaning to one another. Okay, so let's look at grumbling first. Grumbling in verse 3 comes after the words quarrel and test, but since this is the third time we've seen it, we're going to start looking at, at this one, okay? This is, you could call this like grumbling 3.0. All right, this is the third time we've seen it, and, and again, we learn more of what it means. Last week, we saw that the meaning of grumbling is to complain about someone in an accusatory way. Grumbling is not just to decry a situation, but it's to decry a situation and blame somebody for it. You remember that we, we talked about how grumbling is different from groaning. We groan because of suffering. We groan because of the suffering that we experience in this broken world. Groaning is our cry to God for help. For example, groaning is what we see in Romans chapter 8 as part of a broken world. Okay, this is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I think in Romans 8 here, this is the perfect description of what it means to groan. This is what groaning is. Notice in Romans 8, you've heard it, you're familiar with it. Romans 8, the groaning there has a Godward hope. We, we do groan here and now because of our suffering, because the world is broken, but, but our groaning here and now is a groaning to God. We, we groan to God and we look to God 
in hope. That's groaning, okay? We groan to God, we look to God in hope. Grumbling is different. Last week, we mentioned that, I said that the, the, the Hebrew word for grumbling, the word that's always translated grumbling in the Bible, it always has a negative sense. It's always a negative word. Grumbling is rather than asking God for help, when we grumble, we are cynically spewing pessimism. To, to grumble is to be angry in the wrong way. There's an appropriate way to be angry, but grumbling is to be angry in the wrong way. And so there's a, we should ask a question. We have to ask. I got some great emails and had good conversations with, with some of you folks from, from last week about what's the difference between, how do we know, where's the line? Where's the line between groaning and grumbling? Like, how do we know if we're not groaning but grumbling? How, how, do, we, how do we discern? And um, I, I think that's, that's a great question because if you read the Psalms, like for example, in, in Psalm 44, we, we see that the psalmists are often extremely raw and honest before God. Psalm 44 is a great example. Verse nine, the psalmist is praying to God. Psalm 44, verse nine, he says, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. The psalmist is praying to God. And then the psalmist says, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. In Psalm 44, the psalmist is telling Yahweh to wake up. That's an intense way to pray, okay? You, you don't do that lightly. And yet, even that, I believe, is groaning, not grumbling, and the key is that even in the psalmist's honesty, even in his rawness, the psalmist is still coming to God. The psalmist is still bringing his complaint to God, but also looking to God for help. That's, that's the difference. Grumbling does, does not do that, okay? Grumbling brings a complaint to God and looks somewhere else besides God for help. That's the difference. Okay, now notice this, the second word here, quarrel. We see this in verse 2. The people quarreled with Moses. Now, when we hear the word quarrel, we don't say that very often, do we? Quarrel. It's a great word. Um, it's, but when, when I hear it, when maybe you hear it, we, that, that, when I hear the word, I think that's like maybe two people shouting back and forth at one another, right? We have, it has the idea of, of two people maybe in, a, in an argument, in a shouting contest. Quarrels are the sort of things that happen between football fans of opposing teams. Right? I remember when I was 12 years old, I went to my first NFL game. It was in Atlanta, my dad and my brother, we went and we saw the Falcons and the Raiders at the Georgia Dome. And at that game, I saw quarrels, okay? And like, well, up, like up to that point, up to that point in my life, I had never seen grown adults like shout profanities at one another. I've never seen that. That will, that's what was happening at this. I, I didn't even know. I, I, did, I didn't even know some of the words, you know. And I'm like, Dad, what does that mean? He's like, nothing, son, you know. Just don't work. 
And that, you know, and that, and that actually, I want to think that most games I've been to, you see that sort of thing, just the, the intensity and th- that's quarreling. That's, that's a quarrel, the back and forth sort of thing. That, that's, that's what a quarrel, that's, that's not what's happening here in Exodus 17, okay? I think a better translation of the Hebrew is, is really the word to protest, to protest. Moses is not doing the back and forth here. They're not shouting back and forth. The people instead are protesting Moses or as the old King James version puts it, wherefore the people did chide with Moses. I love that. I love that. They're chiding. That's what's happening here. The the people are chiding with Moses. And and the word, it has this this legal sense to it. It means to present a suit or or to contend, to contend against someone. And that's what the people are doing because they don't have any water. Because they don't have water, the people are accusing, protesting, chiding with Moses. And part of that protest includes a demand. The people protested Moses and demanded, give us water to drink. Now, just side note here, okay? Side note. When words are spoken, they're never just words. Spoken words are always doing an action. This is, this is often called speech acts. And as humans, like we talk this, this, we talk this way all the time. For example, take the words, I do, I do. Now in one sense, it's just two words. It's I and do. But when they're spoken in a certain context, they do certain things. Anybody want some pie? I do, right? You do, we do. So in that context, I do, two words, I do becomes a claim. I'm claiming, yeah, I want some pie. Or consider those words on your wedding day. In that context, I do becomes a commitment. In different contexts, our words are doing different actions. And there are all kinds of categories for these different actions. And, and one such category is the category of demands. Demands. D- demands not mentioned here, but that's what's happening. Give us water is a demand. And demands are the wrong way to ask God for something. One more side note. This is for parents, okay? As parents, we want our children to know the difference between demands and requests, right? We want them to know the difference. And and we need to help our kids with this. We need to help our kids know the difference between demands and requests. I've heard it said of one family that one family that, that the kids were taught never to start any sentence to their parents with the words, give me blank. It was against the rules. You couldn't start a sentence saying, give me blank. Or most of the time, when, when the word's actually spoken, you know how it sounds. Gimme. Gimme. And in this family, in this family, 
You could not start sentences with gimme, gimme this or gimme that. And the rule would, would go in this one family that when the kids would say gimme, the parents would reply back and say, gimme? Who's gimme? Last I heard, gimme got his honey spanked. Gimme don't come around here anymore. Gimme doesn't live in this house. There's no gimme under this roof. Well, here in Exodus 17, the people are protesting Moses. They're protesting Yahweh. And they're saying, gimme, gimme. And Moses, he knows exactly what they're doing. This is why he says to them, after they say, gimme, he says, why do, why do you protest me? Why do you test the Lord? Okay, now let's talk about tests. Okay, here, here's, we got to talk about this testing. Look at it right here. Notice how the testing corresponds to the gimme. Verse 2 starts with the people protesting Moses and saying, gimme. And then Moses, Moses follows that and says, why do you protest me and test Yahweh? So the test, the testing Yahweh is seen in the people's demand of Yahweh. And one tip, uh, one tip when it comes to reading the Bible is that often, you guys know this, the Bible can interpret itself. Sometimes to understand certain parts of Scripture, we go to other parts of Scripture to shed some light. And, and when it comes to this idea of testing, this, this word for testing, the idea of testing here is always described as a bad thing in Scripture. Moses is going to tell us later in Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, Moses is going to say, this is a command from Moses, Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa, which is where we are right here. That's what this place is called. Now, we also have the gospel of Matthew in chapter four. Matthew chapter four is when Jesus is being tempted by Satan and Jesus in his dialogue with Satan, Jesus quotes Moses from Deuteronomy six. Satan told Jesus, you remember the scene, Satan told Jesus, hey, throw yourself off the top of the temple and then the angels are gonna have to come and rescue you. Moses, uh, the, the, the devil's quoting Psalm 91 and he's saying, hey, Jesus, jump off the, the temple and make the angels have to come rescue you. But this is what Jesus says to the devil. He says, as it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 6. And you can see what he's saying here. You can see what he's saying. No, no, to Satan. You, you don't test the Lord. Also, Psalm 78, this is a key place. In Psalm 78, listen to Psalm 78, verse 18. This is another place in Scripture that looks back on this scene here in Exodus. The psalmist is looking back to this time after the Exodus. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 78, verse 18. They, Israel, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. It's clear as day in Psalm 78. The testing of Yahweh is their demanding of Yahweh. The test is the demand partnered with the protest spewing from a heart that is grumbling against God. 
The people of Israel are shaking their fist at God, accusing him of wrongdoing, and then presuming upon his provision. The the people of Israel are basically saying to Yahweh, gimme, gimme, gimme. That's what's happening. They're shaking their fist and they're saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. And that, that, that is a test you must fail to give. What I mean is don't do that, okay? Don't do that, church. Don't do what Israel is doing here. And the only way we could do that, the only way we could do this like Israel is if we've lost our entire perspective, which is apparently what they have done. I mean, God has made a way for them when there has been no way. He has already provided them water. He dropped meat in their laps and made bread magically appear on the ground every morning. They've seen what he can do. They've experienced his supernatural provision, yet they arrive at a place that doesn't have water and immediately they shake their fist at him. Take it easy, Israel. We read this and we just take it easy. Wait a minute. We, Yahweh's going to provide for you. We, he's going to provide for you. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. At this point, Israel questions Yahweh's provision because Israel isn't even sure if Yahweh is still around. We see that in verse 7. Okay, look over at verse 7. Verse 7 actually gives us another angle on the testing here, and it's the second lesson that I mentioned before. Let me just mention it again. Lesson number two. Here it is. Remember God's presence transcends your circumstance. Verse 7. Verse 7 is one of those concluding verses that kind of sums up everything that was said before it. That's that's what we have here in verse 7. Verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Mirabah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested Yahweh by saying, is Yahweh among us or not? So part of Israel's testing Yahweh, part of Israel saying gimme, was the belief that Yahweh was long gone. They thought Yahweh had left them. Now, why would they have thought that? It's it's simple. They thought Yahweh had left them because there was no water. And in their broken theology, they could not conceive of a God who would lead them to a place without water, which is what what Yahweh had done in verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that Israel moved in stages according to the commandment of Yahweh. So wherever Israel ended up during each of these moves, they were there because Yahweh led them there, but they assumed that the there would always have the goodies. Already, already here, within a month of being rescued, Israel had collapsed together God and his gifts. 
and they had collapsed him together so badly that when the gift of water wasn't there right away, they assumed Yahweh wasn't there. They were saying to him, give me, give me if you're even here. This is basically the prosperity gospel in Exodus 17. It's it's the belief that God wants you to prosper. And when you're not prospering, either it's because you're not doing something right or God has left you. Because according to this distorted way of seeing God in the world, there is no category that you could be in the right place, doing the right thing, and not be prospering under God's blessing. The problem with that, though, is that here in Exodus 17, Israel had followed God to the place he commanded. They were at the place that he commanded, and that place he commanded had no water for the people to drink. God led Israel. This is what happened here. God led Israel to a bad circumstance, but they thought that God was nowhere near bad circumstances. That's what they thought. They thought God was nowhere near bad circumstances, but of course he is. Of course he is. Otherwise, if God is not near bad circumstances, how could God ever raise the dead? Our entire hope as Christians is that God gets near bad circumstances. In fact, in fact, we know this. We know that the the Bible shows us that oftentimes God can be the nearest in the worst circumstances. And although we know this, although we have the word of God that shows us is still, we are so prone to ask, like millions of God's people over thousands of years, we are still so prone to ask when things are hard, God, where are you? We ask that, don't we? We are still so prone to ask him when things are difficult. Are you even here? Church, I want you to know that God's presence transcends your circumstance. Wherever you're coming from, like whatever it is that you have going on, I'm going to speak the truth to you right now, okay? Hear this. Whatever it is that you have going on, because of Jesus, the presence of God is with you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You got the spirit of God in you. And long before Jesus gave us the spirit in Acts 2, we see this hope in the Old Testament. We see this hope in the saints of God. My favorite passage is in Psalm 139. And this is David. And he is just, David in Psalm 139, he is just reveling in the supremacy and the nearness of Yahweh. This is what David says in Psalm 139, verse 7. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? You know this. Where shall I go from your spirit? 
Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is with you. God is leading you. God is holding you. And if that is true for David in Psalm 139, how much truer is it for you and me who have the Holy Spirit? We are the church. We are, because of Jesus, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that because of our faith, the Apostle Paul says, because of our faith in Jesus, God the Father has put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Do you believe that or not? Like, we have to think about, do we believe that Paul means it when he says the Holy Spirit lives inside of us? I believe it. We're supposed to believe this. And that means, because it's true, it means that wherever you go, the Spirit goes. Because he's with you. He's in you. And so the circumstances don't really matter. I mean, they don't ultimately matter. High, low, heavy, light, hot, cold, north, south, east, west. God's presence transcends your circumstance. And this is something we need to remember, okay? Because I'm saying this now and we hear it now, but I want us to remember this. How do we remember this? And the best way to remember it is to simply acknowledge it. Acknowledge it especially when you're in a difficult spot, especially when you're tempted to say, where are you, God? Remember, remember, when you're burdened about something, maybe you're at work and a few things go sideways, or, or maybe you're at home and it's just chaos with the kids, or maybe you're alone and you don't want to be. Remember, acknowledge, God, you are with me right now. Even where it's tough, even when I'm in a place, I don't want to be where I am. Even when I'm in a place where I don't want to be, you're here. You're here. God, you are with me. That's how we acknowledge it. God, you are with me. Remember that God's presence transcends your circumstance. And in that place, wherever that place is, he will provide what you need. Just like he does here again in Exodus 17. We see, we're going to see this over and over again. This is the third lesson for us, okay? Number three, third lesson. Drink from the rock in wonder and joy. Look at verse five. Okay, Moses has done all he knows he can do. He has taken this to Yahweh. He has asked for help. Look at verse five. It's about to get good, okay? Look at verse five. Now he said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the, uh, some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. 
Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So a wonderful thing has happened here. Yahweh gives merciful, miraculous provision. And we should notice the mercy first, okay? Because it, it might be so obvious that we, we miss it. But the hearts of the people here are not in a good place. Okay, they, they have been grumbling again, protesting again, shaking their fist at God. Even after everything God has done, they still do not trust him. They still think that he's not going to provide for them. They still lie to themselves and think that they were better off in Egypt. I mean, this is a people who should be overcome with jaw-dropping thankfulness, and they're just not. They are angry and they're bitter. And we can read this story and just think, give me a break. We, we can read this story and be confused by what they're doing here. But look how Yahweh responds. Israel shaking their fist at God and they're saying, give me. And Yahweh gives. He doesn't tell Moses to strike the people like they deserved. Instead, Yahweh tells Moses to pass on before the people and to strike the rock. Did you hear that? Those two words, pass on, strike. Can we think of another place in the story of Exodus, where those words pass on and strike are used together. It's back in Exodus 12, the Passover. Listen to Exodus 12, verse 23. For Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So back in Exodus 12, Yahweh told Israel that he would pass over their houses and not strike them if they had the blood on their door, which was just mercy. This is sheer mercy. And the mercy was in the blood. The blood of a lamb that was struck was the only thing that kept Yahweh from striking the people. Yahweh passed over the people because of a struck lamb. And here in Exodus 17, Moses, on Yahweh's behalf, passes over the people to strike the rock. And this would have meant something to them. To, to the people of Israel, like on the ground in this story, they would have remembered Exodus 12. 
They would have gotten the message. I think that's why God tells Moses to bring some of the elders of Israel with them to see him strike the rock. God wants them to put the pieces together of what's happening here. And the earliest readers of this story, they would have done that. They would have understood this is mercy. Like like Moses here in this scene, he is reenacting the Passover. And they would have known, do do, do you remember what Yahweh did for us? Do you remember the mercy of Yahweh? We are only here right now because of the sheer mercy of Yahweh. The rock is mercy. And it's also a miracle. It's a miracle. Verse 6, you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it. Now, water doesn't usually come out of a rock because it's a rock. We know that. We, none of us ever expects to get a cold glass of water from a rock. Agreed? And that's the point. That's precisely the point. Water from a rock is like pie on the ground. This is a miracle that God is performing for his people. And these people are going to, they're they're going to get their stomachs full of manna. And now they're going to, to have their thirst quench by sheer miracle. My, my kids are loud drinkers. Some of you guys know what I mean when I say loud drinker. If you've heard a loud drinker, you know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? Our four-year-old does this the best, okay? Noah, he'll take a swig of milk or something, and after he takes the swig, he'll go, "Ah." you guys know what I'm saying? Anywhere in the house, we know when Noah's drinking some milk, because you just hear the, "Ah." like he cannot help but do it. Every, Every swig he takes, he follows it with this, And I imagine that the entire nation of Israel is doing that here. Like verse 6, it says, the people will drink. They're going to drink. And I imagine as an entire nation drinks and lets out that sigh of relief, as as they let out that outburst of satisfaction, in that moment, in that moment, when the, when the nation is saying, they know, they know, this is a miracle. This, this water came from a rock. It came from a rock. And they know, they know, this is a miracle. And maybe by then, after they take the drink, maybe by then they all would have dropped the rocks they had picked up in their hands to stone Moses. Maybe by then they were all finally drinking from the rock in wonder and joy. Because what is this rock? What is this rock? We're going to hear more about the rock 
in the Bible. In fact, 40 years after this moment in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses sings a song to Israel and in the song, he retraces God's faithfulness to them. And in this song, five different times, Moses calls Yahweh the rock. Deuteronomy 32, verse four, the rock, his way is perfect. Verse 15, the rock of Israel's salvation. Verse 18, the rock that bore you. In Deuteronomy 32, the rock is Yahweh. And the only other time that word for rock is used in Deuteronomy is to describe this scene of when Moses strikes the rock. So here's the thing. Moses understands that Yahweh providing water from the rock is Yahweh providing from himself. Remember, Yahweh stood on the rock when Moses struck the rock. The message of the rock in Exodus 17 is the self-giving grace of Yahweh. And this is so much the message that Yahweh himself is called the rock. I mean, this is all about the self-giving grace of God. Yahweh is the rock. That's what Moses tells us. And it's also what the apostle Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Listen to this. Paul is describing the Exodus. He's looking back. He's describing this moment in Israel's history. Israel is in the desert. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For I, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So for Moses, Yahweh is the rock. The rock is the self-giving grace of God. Well, for Paul, he knows that the self-giving grace of God has a name and the name is Jesus. The self-giving grace of God is actually a person and that person is Christ. That person is Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is the true rock who was struck to provide for his people. And that means for us, like right now, this morning, because we're thirsty too. We're all thirsty too. We, we all were dying of thirst in the desert of our sin all of us. And, and maybe in that desert of our sin, maybe we shook our fist at God. Maybe we just ignored God. Or, or maybe we just, we just had an idea of who God is that was completely wrong. You could even be here this morning. This is possible. You may not even know you're thirsty. You may not know. But we're dying of thirst. All of us are dying of thirst until we drink from the rock that was struck. And Jesus was struck so that you might drink. That is the meaning of the cross where Jesus died. 
in his self-giving grace, Jesus took God's judgment against us so that we would have God's blessing over us. Jesus died so that we would live. So would you live? Would you? Would you live? Drink from the rock. Put your faith in Jesus, which is what this table is about. Each week as we come to this table, we remember the death of Jesus for us. We remember that Jesus was crushed, that Jesus was, he was struck for the forgiveness of our sins. And anyone who drinks, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, they are indeed forgiven. And so if that's you this morning, if you are here and you trust in Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you are forgiven, we invite you to come and eat and drink. We invite you, drink from the rock in wonder and joy. We're going to serve the bread first. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.